This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we examine the question of who brought about Jesus' execution, acknowledging the different characters at play and the role they each had. Yeah. Now, you, you said we were in last podcast, and you did an awful lot of reading. Like, you had you had some reading today. Yeah, last episode was the Brent Billings episode. This episode is the Marty Solomon episode. Ooh. I give it to you. <laughs> well, you mentioned that you noticed in the midst of all of that reading... Which it wasn't in the midst; it was actually at the very beginning. You noticed a little hint. Well, to the beginning, this question. the beginning of chapter twenty-seven. Oh, chapter twenty-seven. Okay, it's right in smack dab in the middle. Early in the morning, the center of the chiasm, perhaps. Ooh, Ooh probably not. Probably, probably not. not. <laughs> I'm not prepared with that information. Uh, early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So it was the chief priests and the elders who did it. Well, okay, done. Next episode. <laughs> it's been great to have you with us today. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to us at Marty Solomon. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. Uh, so we have, um, yeah, the conversation about who killed Jesus is actually a really electric topic. You don't dive into this hastily. Uh, I mean, with so much anti-Semitism, like behind the whole who killed Jesus thing, uh, handling this question can be a ticking time bomb. Nevertheless, it's interesting to make some very basic observations about what gets Jesus into so much trouble. Uh, without a doubt, I'm not going to be letting Rome off the hook here. Like, Rome's going to play a part. We'll get to that by the end of this episode. They literally killed him. Yeah, like, well, they yeah. They physically carried correct. it out. That is correct, absolutely. Which they had to in their day. Um, they did not allow any other people group to do capital punishment. That was against Roman law. So once the, you know, once the crowd that is responsible for Jesus' death decides to have him executed, they can only turn to one place. There's only one people that, people group that can do that, and that's the Romans. Couldn't they stone him? Uh, I Not in Jerusalem. I wouldn't want to... I mean, Stephen is stoned. You know, that's a really good question. Um, that is a good question, Brent Billings. Um, <laughs> because I suppose the answer to that is yes. And yet, they very, very intentionally... They don't just want him dead. They want him... They want him dead in a particular way. They are demanding crucifixion because crucifixion, if you remember from last episode, Brent, what was that reserved for? Well, you said zealots, right? Yeah. And, and in like more our language today, we would say what? Terrorists. Terrorists. Like it was a, it wasn't just capital punishment. It was a form of capital punishment designed to just torture you literally to death. It was the worst torture that they could possibly come up with and they use it to torture insurgents terrorists zealots and so the group of people that are having jesus killed definitely want him killed a, a particular way to send a message to people that are watching so i'm not gonna be letting rome off the hook uh, i want to deal with that later so the other two people on the cross next to him were Absolutely. probably zealots uh, well the word is zealots um, we translate it robbers um, and thieves, but the word is used throughout extra biblical literature to talk about zealots. Oh, so the two man. robbers sitting next to Jesus are zealots, um, without a doubt. And and listen, the only people hanging on cross are zealots. Like if you see somebody hanging on a cross, you know that they're an insurgent. You know that they're a terrorist. You know that they're a zealot, which is what they're saying as they hang on the cross. Like this guy's not a zealot. And so many people thought Jesus was a zealot. So these two are on the cross making fun of him because right. At the moment that he had a chance to do something, he just... Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, absolutely. So much context there. So good. Yeah. 
So there's uh, no, and then the other one like realizes the error of his zealot, yeah, zealotous sure. ways, and absolutely, and says, oh, I've messed up, and he like, oh, absolutely, God. yeah, so good. So he good. totally gets it. Like he's been confronted with two different agendas as he hangs in his final moments, and he's like, I get it. Like I know which one, which story wins here, because the story I bought into my whole life doesn't win. Yeah, absolutely. So there's no question that Rome plays a part in the crucifixion of Jesus. They have to. The Jewish leadership does not have the judicial authority to execute prisoners by crucifixion. So at the very least, Rome Rome authorizes the death of Jesus. But as you pointed out, they do even more than that. They actually carry it out. But what does get Jesus in trouble is something far deeper than Roman authorities. This would be the perfect place to go back and review. Uh, let's see. I think we're going to link in our show notes, Brent. We have a podcast on the Sadducees, which is podcast episode number 76. 76. All right. So you go back and review that because the, the Sadducees and the chief priests, particularly here, the chief priests, those seven ruling families that kind of formed a mafia of sorts— they're who we're dealing with here in the story. The chief, and you pointed out in your verse that you read from Matthew 27, the chief priests and the elders of the people, which those elders of the people are always hanging there with the chief priests. They are a part of this corrupt circle of religious Jewish leadership. leadership. So there are a few things that we should state like right up front, just very clear statements. First of all, the Jews, quote unquote, the Jews did not kill Jesus. Uh, This has been one of the most destructive misinterpretations of history that the world has ever seen. Millions of Jews have been slaughtered in the name of this false idea. All throughout the Gospels, it's clear that the Jewish people loved, adored, and even revered Jesus. The plot to kill Jesus hinges completely upon executing Jesus outside the eye of the Jewish public so that they won't rebel against the Jewish leaders. Like we've seen that, right, Brent? Every single time they want to kill Jesus, they can't because of why? Because of the the people. The The people. He's popular. And which people? Like what kind of people? The Jews. The Jewish people. Yeah. Okay, here's a question, though. Okay, I like that. Who are the 3,000 people in Acts 2 who are so upset about this when Peter... Well, well, that is section section 4 material. I'll save it. But uh, it's Jewish people. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Which, bring that up again, because that's actually a really good question. I'm going to need some time to think about my answer. Okay. Luckily, I have all the way to session four. Yeah, yeah, just a few episodes away. Yeah. Uh, So I can't tell you how many times I've heard the phrase, Jesus entered Jerusalem to cheers from the crowd, only to be crucified by them a week later. (laughs) To be very clear, it was not the same crowd. Jesus is arrested, tried, and beaten by a corrupt body of ruling priests and their mafia-style justice. This is not the same people who grabbed Hoshana branches at the triumphal entry and shouted Hoshana as he rode in on a donkey. Not the same people. Even though the Pharisees, this is point number two for me, even though the Pharisees helped arrange this plot, at least some of them, I don't think all the Pharisees did at all. I don't think the Pharisaic party was involved at all. But there are some Pharisees that were involved in arranging this plot to kill Jesus. The Pharisees were not the ones who led this charge or this execution. This is completely unappreciated in our teachings. Like whenever we talk about it, we always hear people say, well, the Pharisees and Sadducees killed Jesus. No, the Pharisees and Sadducees did not kill Jesus. The Sadducees killed Jesus. More specifically, the who killed Jesus, Brent? The chief priests. The chief priests. Um, That's a very particular group of corrupt people. The Pharisees and the Sadducees despised each other. They would work together to conspire against Jesus. The fact that they would do that is uh, almost unbelievable. I guess, 
it's it's hard to get your head around that culturally. It makes me think that the Pharisees involved, the few that were involved, were as corrupt as the Sadducees and the chief priests that they're dealing with. One must keep in mind that the Pharisees tried to save Jesus' life more than once earlier in his ministry. If you remember, Brent, who was it that came to Jesus and said, Heron wants to kill you, you need to leave? Gosh, where was that? It was in Luke. Luke. So we didn't look at it. We haven't done it on the podcast. But if you study Luke, some group of people are going to come to Jesus and they're going to say, hey, Herod wants to kill you. You need to get out of here. Well, Pharisees. Pharisees. I mean, Jesus spent three years with these guys, right? Um, so, so point number three here, it is the chief priests, bold. Chief priests, if I can bold my statement here who conspire against Jesus and arrange his execution. It's worth noting that Jesus spends three years confronting the Pharisees within every corner of their theology and survives to tell the tale and even continues to engage them in their methods up into his death. Compare that to the fact that Jesus spends less than one week confronting the corrupt rule of the chief priests and gets himself killed. This is why Jesus knows, by the way, when he's going to, that he's going to die in Jerusalem. It's not just because he has his gog goggles on, looking into the future. It's because he knows he is headed into Jerusalem to confront corrupt religious power, the injustice of a religious mafia, and nobody survives to tell that tale. Once we have an understanding of this corruption that lied behind the execution of Jesus, it helps us appreciate the story on so many levels. And Brent, this is... It is embarrassing to note how recent of an understanding this is for me. Like within the last five, six years when all this stuff clicked for me. Like I had even done a round or two of Bema and this wasn't a part of my, my teaching. I had just not gotten my head around this yet. So why is Jesus uh, tried by the Sanhedrin? What is the Sanhedrin? Brent, tell me about the Sanhedrin. Oh, I was literally just going to ask you about the Sanhedrin. Okay, well, I'll tell you that. <laughs> because back when they were in chapter 26 of Matthew, when they were questioning him, it says, uh, those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, okay, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. So Peter follows him in at a distance, blah, blah, blah. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus. So we've got, we've got Caiaphas, the high priest, at play here. right. So he's one of the chief priests. Correct. Then we've got the teachers of the law and the elders. Absolutely. Uh, And then we've got the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin. Right. And the whole Sanhedrin there is a little bit of an issue of translation, what's being actually said there. But yes, absolutely. So Sanhedrin. And we may have even talked about this in the Sadducees podcast, episode 76, you said it was? Yeah. Okay. Um, So it might even be in there and we may be repeating ourselves, but that is okay. We have to learn this stuff multiple times. Anyway, um, the, the Sanhedrin, there was a formal Sanhedrin. The formal Sanhedrin is some 70, 72 leaders, half of them Pharisees, half of them Sadducees. They are the official ruling body of the Jewish people. Um, I'm trying to think of what the parallel would be for us. Think of like, uh, I, I, I don't know, a weird combination of the Supreme Court and, well, not Congress, but they don't have the executive branch, but they are the ruling body. The ruling... Well, would, the, would the high priest be the, the chief executive? 
Uh, I'm not sure if he had an actual official role on the official Sanhedrin, but that's actually the problem because Josephus tells us very clearly that there were two different Sanhedrins, the formal Sanhedrin and the informal Sanhedrin. Now, the formal Sanhedrin is that group of 70, 72 people that meets uh, half Pharisee, half Sadducee. It's formal. It's, uh, they follow a set of order. Um, think about Congress, like they follow an actual set of, it's a very uh, set meeting. But then there's an informal Sanhedrin, and that was made up of the chief priests. That one would have been run by the high priest for sure. It is informal, and it is much more mafia-like. That Sanhedrin, the informal Sanhedrin, Josephus tells us, met at the house of the high priest. They made decisions in that Sanhedrin, And those decisions were then brought to the formal Sanhedrin, and they simply ratified them. Because if you didn't ratify those decisions, what do you suppose happened, Brent? Uh, You probably probably get knocked off the membership list. Yes, that is absolutely correct. Like off with your head at that point. So this is the corruption playing itself out. There is a backroom group of people doing backroom deals, and then everybody else is just giving the nod. I'm so glad that we are beyond this in our systems today. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, right. yeah, that was good. That was good. I like that. That was good. Good way to sneak that in there. All right. So uh, that's that's who Jesus is tried by because you have a verse, Brent. Give me the verse about Peter. Where does Peter go? We're told which Sanhedrin. Like we hear this and we picture Jesus standing on like an official trial before an official court before the official Sanhedrin. But that's not where they're at. Where are they at, Brent? So I started reading this earlier. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. Okay, so where are they at? They're at the house of the high priest. They're at the house of the high priest. Um, They're inside and Peter's sitting right outside. Absolutely. This is not the formal Sanhedrin. It's late at night. The formal Sanhedrin wouldn't be be meeting right now anyway. And they've done this all under the cover of darkness on purpose to avoid the public. This is all corruption. This is all chief priests. This is all mafia. This is being done at the chief priest's house. In fact, in our trips, we actually go to a house that I think is a actually a pretty good. And and we have a picture of a model of that house. We do. And we talked about it on the podcast before, right? I We might have. I think so. Uh, so actually, it is the presentation of episode 76 that we've been referencing you where you can find this picture okay excellent but there's a model of the high priest's house yes uh taken from within the ruins of that house right and and this is the the picture of the courtyard where you can see peter right where peter would would be sitting outside watching the proceedings inside absolutely absolutely so this is uh, this was the informal backdoor Sanhedrin meeting in the home of the chief priest. They made decisions that were ratified by the formal body. That's how this corruption operated. Uh, where was Jesus tried? In the home of the chief priest. This is not the formal Sanhedrin, but the informal one. This helps us see why the trial of Jesus is so corrupt. Breaking over 15 commandments held by Jewish teaching about how to conduct an investigation and hold a trial appropriately. Like, they don't care about those rules. A, they're not Pharisees, and they don't even, they don't even adhere to those rules. And B, they're a totally corrupt, informal body anyway. Uh, they break all of these rules because they don't care. They are the chief priests. Now, they care just enough. Like, they still maintain 
enough rules that they are aligned with Torah, but they just don't care about all the extra Jewish rulings of what's necessary. So they figured out how to live within all of these corrupt loopholes. Uh, this is going to help us understand the political sway that this group will hold over Pilate later. Because remember, the chief priests were selected by who, Brent? Let's remember the setting here. Weren't they uh, families? They were families. And who was the first chief priest? Bought the priesthood from who? Oh, yes. This was back in the... Uh... Gosh, what episode was that? It was very... Was this the end of session two? Or beginning of session three? Beginning of session three. Beginning of session three. Uh, we have a new king that they went, They saw Rome coming. Yes. And the chief priests knew they were never going to survive a Roman takeover. And so they went and they found a king who was super wealthy and whose wealth could match the power of Rome. Who was this? Oh, so that was Herod. Herod. Herod the Great, right? Oh, From Nabatea. I was thinking prior to that with the... Uh... The Hasmoneans? Yes, yes, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, so after the Hasmonean dynasty, that dynasty ends with them setting up a Herodian Herodian dynasty. They go to Herod. They essentially said, Herod, come be our king. Herod holds the chief priesthood up for the highest bidder, and that's where these chief priests kind of get their corruption established under Herod. Now, if you remember, Herod the Great rules very effectively (laughs) because of his wealth and his control of the region rules very effectively in the region of Judea and Samaria. Um, And then he dies and he gives his kingdom to his three sons, Philip in the north, Antipas in the central portion, and then Archelaus in the south. And they do, how good of a job do they do compared to their dad? Not so good. Not great at all, especially Archelaus around Jerusalem, which leads us into our next, the concluding portion of our podcast here, which is what about Rome? So we need to talk about Rome. And who's the Roman character in the crucifixion story, Brent? There's a lot about Pilate. There's an awful lot about Pilate. So who is this Pilate character? And why isn't it Archelaus, maybe, I guess? Right, 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 right. Because Archelaus only lasts like a year and a half. I can't remember if it's even two years Archelaus lasts before. This is the most um, tumultuous region in the Roman Empire, which is just astounding to consider. And some would say that's not an accurate statement. In the settled Roman Empire, this is the hardest chunk of dirt to rule because you have these really stubborn people called the Jews who refuse to bend the knee to Caesar. They refuse to acknowledge Caesar's lordship and to worship him. And so it makes ruling in this area horribly difficult. And it is the small little piece of dirt called Judea is the most complicated place to be a governor. Well, Archelaus can't handle it. Herod the Great was able to do it. He was a genius. He was a paranoid genius. Archelaus can't handle it. There's no way. He doesn't even last two years, and he's booted out. And who do they send in? They send in one of their best bulldogs, like one of their greatest minds, governor minds that they have to rule this region with wisdom, imperial wisdom, should I say, imperial wisdom, an iron fist and Roman rule. And his name is Pilate. And it's so fascinating. Like when Jesus is before Pilate, Pilate's like, what is the big deal? Like, what what have you even done? And people are like, no, crucify him. Like, well, but, but what, there's not even a, there's not even a charge. Right. And, and so he's like, well, you know, I guess, so you see all these, all these political things he set up. He, every, 
uh, every festival, he releases yes. a prisoner. Absolutely. So it's like, hey, we're going to rule with his iron fist. We're going to do our Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. But hey, you know what? If we make a mistake and we accidentally like right. arrest somebody who's a little too Absolutely. important, it's like, we'll, we'll yep. make it work out. And We've got a law and order thing going on on one hand, but we also have a appease the people thing in another so that we can, you know, control the, I mean, they don't have media, but the popular opinion, that kind of thing, right? So then Pilate tries to reason with them, and, and you know, he sees, says when Pilate saw he was getting nowhere, uh, but the, instead an uproar was starting, he's like, whatever, I wash my hands, you guys do whatever you want. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> he's, it's so, so political. Absolutely, absolutely. So that's the political situation that leads to the showdown on that fateful week of Passover. And we already talked about the triumphal entry. So we've already done the whole, like, don't mess with Rome. Who is it that enters from the west side, Brent? What that, character? That's Pilate. That's Pilate coming in from the west. And then Jesus comes in on his donkey from the east. We've done that episode already. Make no mistake, Jesus has certainly riled up some people throughout Holy Week. He's drawn some attention from Rome with his triumphal entry stunt. And the whole group of people waving palm branches. I'm sure the guards in the Antonio Fortress, a Roman guard post overlooking the uh, Temple Mount. There's a little big fortress. If you ever see a model of Jerusalem, big fortress sitting there. Um, we might even be able to find a picture of that and put it in there somewhere. I don't know. Maybe. Um, but he's probably gotten their attention from the Antonio Fortress. Uh, so this fortress that sits over the temple courts is actually a, like a glaring statement about the watchful eye of Rome that's always seeing you. So imagine he's got the triumphal entry. He went into the temple, and what did he do, Brent, immediately? He cleared it out. He cleared it out, flipped over tables, caused quite a commotion, which I guarantee you got the Romans' attention sitting there in the Antonio Fortress. Because it's the week of Passover. This fortress isn't still standing today, is it? Uh, no, it's not still standing today. Um, no, it's not. That's just a quick answer to that. Uh, that level of the Temple Mount is actually about 20 feet under the one you walk on today. And I've been down too close to where that would have been. You can actually get down right where the Via del Rosa starts would have been right outside of the Antonio Fortress. Um, and you can't actually walk some of that today, um, which is not the right Via del Rosa. But come on my trip to figure that out. Just want to make that clear. Yeah, good good plug for the trip. There you go. All right. Come on the trip not to see the Antonio Fortress, but to see many, many other things. Yeah, that's right. That's correct. We will see some of the stones from Herod's Palace. I will say that much. All right. Anyway. Um, which is the right place for the Via del Rosa, but I digress. Um, so he's definitely riled up some people. Um, uh, uh, the Romans are on alert. He's been flipping over tables. He's doing the triumphal entry. But, but let's be clear here. Jesus wasn't picking a fight with Rome. Of course, on one level, that last statement isn't true. Um, Jesus' entire ministry has been a statement against Rome. It's very anti-Rome. It's about the lie of empire and the promise of new life and a better kingdom. Um, and we've, we've recommended uh, scholars, the book that we've been recommending, we'll plug it again here, Brent, the last week by Crossan and Borg. Uh, they do a lot of uh, first century Roman contextual scholarship. They've pointed out that those are fighting words. That's, that's absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. Um, you don't have to, you don't claim to have a kingdom that stands in opposition to Rome, uh, not without being prepared to pay the consequences. But Jesus's teachings have appeared to the world of Rome completely backwards and counterintuitive. Some have used the words mystic in connection to the kind of rabbi Jesus was. Jesus wasn't marching on Rome or leading a revolt with swords or clubs. 
Jesus wasn't fighting a worldly war over a worldly kingdom in a worldly way. In fact, it's when uh, it's when Pilate asks Jesus if he's king that Jesus responds by saying, "My kingdom is not of this world, because if it were, my servants would fight. But they are not here to wage war on Rome as a political empire. They are here to wage war on empire itself. An empire is showing up in their own house, their own Jewish house, with their own leadership. Forget about Rome. Jesus marches on the temple to do some house cleaning of his own. I'm sure it's possible that Jesus had Rome's attention, but was Rome out to get Jesus? What kind of a threat is this peasant rabbi who's been running around telling people to forgive their enemies? And you've already pointed it out, Brent. Like, Pilate's like, what's the big deal? Like, I don't get it. You want me to crucify this guy as a terrorist? He seems pretty harmless. So so Jesus is not pro-Rome. I'm certainly not saying that. Jesus is anti-empire every step along the way. And that has huge Roman consequences. But I don't think Rome looks at Jesus and bats an eye. I think Rome looks at Jesus and goes, yeah, yeah. What do you know? I mean, he's he's riding in the East Gate. He's on a donkey. Right, right. Like, There's no he's, threat He's not here. making a big show. He doesn't have an army of chariots behind him. Correct. Now, if he gets a whole bunch of people mobilized and starts doing something, that's going to be different. But at this point, but what Jesus is doing is he's really ticking off the religious, the corrupt religious authorities. Uh, it is most clear in the gospel account of John as we watch Pilate try again and again to find something to accuse Jesus of, and he fails. And then he tries again and again to release Jesus, stating that he's found no fault in him. Rome tried to laugh this peasant rabbi off. A threat? No way. But this wasn't about military power. It's not about the threat of a heavenly kingdom. This is about a political threat to the stability of Rome. In this region, the ability of Pilate to keep this region secure... On this week, Passover week, it's the whole reason he's come in for that triumphal entry scene. He has to keep peace here or Rome makes him lose his job, if not his life. The trial before Pilate isn't about Jesus. It's the intersection between Pilate and the corrupt religious leaders who saw an imminent threat to their system of power and luxury. This was a religious mafia making it quite clear, Pilate, if you don't execute this man as a terrorist publicly, We will make this very difficult on you. We will turn this region on its head, and we will let Caesar know who his real friends are. Listen to what they actually say, Brent. You have a passage from John, and tell me what they say in John 19. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Ooh, those are political fighting words right there. Aren't you supposed to be Caesar's henchmen? Well, we know Caesar. We'll make sure that Caesar knows who's at fault here. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabatha. It doesn't say Aramaic. That's translators making an arbitrary decision. Gosh dang it. Go ahead. Uh, I should get a bell. (laughs) Every time that happens. (laughs) It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Who answered? The chief priests. Interesting. Interesting. And then got one more little phrase. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. 
This to them. He handed Jesus over to them to be crucified. He did. That's right. And that's how John words it. Now, the Romans are going to be the ones that actually carry it out. But uh, this is not about, or this is about politics. This is about corrupted religious power. To reiterate, this is not an effort to say that the Jews killed Jesus. Not at all. As we've mentioned multiple times before, the Jews responded quite favorably to the teachings and ministry of Jesus. It is clear from the text above that this coup is being led by the chief priests, not the Jews, not even the priesthood or the Sadducean party even, but the chief families in charge of the rule of Ananus. And so Pilate washes his hands of the situation and caves the political pressure, a move that does little to let him off the hook. Putting things in their appropriate place has always been important for me. Maybe it's because I want to know how to properly understand the situation that led to Jesus' execution. Maybe it's because I want to understand the people who called for it and why. Maybe it's because I want to understand the dangers of religious power and corruption. Maybe it's because I have a deep love for the Eastern church tradition. That I love this little tradition, Brent. The Eastern church believes, well, the Coptic church believes and has a tradition that says Pilate, after Jesus' crucifixion, Remember his wife. Remember what his wife said. What did his wife say? Oh, yeah. That was that was what? Matthew 26? Yeah, Matthew 26. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. So a lot of people in the Eastern tradition believe that Pilate took off. He ran away. He escaped. He left his post as governor in Rome. He. We don't have any evidence of him kind of outside of this time period. So tradition says he left, ran off, he and his wife, to Egypt, and they were the ones that founded what is now the Coptic Church today in Egypt, that he converted, repented, like whatever you want to say, he became a believer and a follower of Jesus and actually planted the church in Egypt, which is fascinating. Do I have, is that history? No, that's tradition. But boy, do I love that. I am a sucker for happy endings and a stickler for hope. (laughs) And I would love it if that were true about the story of Pilate. I mean, especially the way John words it, like it is so clear. Pilate handed Jesus over to the chief priest to be crucified. Like, yeah. And if John has written late, you wonder if Pilate's, Pilate would have definitely left his post by then. Like, I wonder if the late gospel writer is working a lot harder to shape the story about Pilate because Pilate's already on his spiritual journey. I don't know, man. That's pretty crazy. I can't say that. I just like it. I'm a stickler for that kind of stuff. I love it. I'm a sucker. But uh, anyway, that's our conversation about the plot to kill Jesus. Who killed Jesus? Not the Jews. Chief priests, that corrupt religious mafia who knew that if Jesus has his way and if the people keep gravitating towards him, their system of power is going to crumble. And uh, he's been coming at them and they say enough off with his head. And they get what they want because they know how to work Roman political power in their favor. This is about corruption. And that's not to say it's not about Rome. It's not my point. But I don't think Rome could care less about a peasant rabbi. He's a mustard seed, if you catch my reference. He is a mustard seed planted in a field. Like, what do they care? Nobody cares. Smallest of all garden plants, right? If you smell what I'm cooking. Cooking some baked bread, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, All right, my metaphor's getting out of hand. It's getting crazy. 
All right, that does it for this episode. Uh, we've got, uh, what, the betrayer coming up next, right? Yeah, we're going to talk about uh, Judas and Peter and betrayal and denial and what's going on there and try to make some observations there. That's next. All right. Well, if you have any questions, you can get a hold of Marty on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. We love hearing from you guys. Uh, so thanks for joining us on the Beamont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. Mm-hmm.